On the Riabu podcast, we are specifically concerned with the welfare of small and medium enterprises. Our hearts beat for SMEs because they are the lifeblood of the economy in most countries, and they're also among the biggest employers. Right now, though, during the COVID-19 crisis, clearly they are facing to use that hackneyed phrase, unprecedented challenges. I guess that's going to be the word of 2020, Simon Littlewood, that uh, we are heading into totally uncharted waters. So, in the next couple of minutes, we're going to talk about the five things that you not only can, but must do to survive the current COVID crisis. It's not necessarily going to save each and every business, but the fact of the matter is that there are certain steps that you can and must take in order to get through this. Uh, the first uh, of these five, Simon, uh, sounds a little bit obvious, but tell me what you mean by plan to survive. Who would plan the opposite? Well, it, it's not so much that people don't want to survive. It's that they're very reluctant to take preemptive action to take out costs to a level where they can sustain business through the worst. You know, what, what companies tend to do is to hope for the best, do a few things, and then essentially prevaricate. Because the reality is that when you plan to survive, what do you do? You make some realistic assumptions about what's going to happen to revenue. So, for example, if we're talking about the current crisis, for many businesses, there is going to be a huge drop in revenue. Um, to take a couple of sectors, the hospitality sector, you know, the airline sector, mm -hmm. uh, F&B. Um, yes. You, know, you, I, you were telling me about your cafe earlier. Yes, What's I mean, I have, I'm a creature of habit, and I went to, to, to downstairs to a cafe that I go to most days during the week. And I hadn't been since Monday because we've been working from home, and it's decimated. At, at, at 8.30 in the morning on a working day, I would expect there to be a long queue, all the tables occupied. There were a handful of people in there. There was no queue. And the staff were looking very concerned. They remarked on the fact that I hadn't been in for three days. And I'm just one of hundreds of customers, you know. Yeah. So, so um, they're seeing, people are seeing an enormous uh, reduction in business. So when you plan to survive, you take the, the action that you need to take quickly. So you're, you create a detailed plan which honestly lays out the worst case. And the worst case is an aggressive assumption in terms of revenue reducing to a level well below that required to sustain your existing cost structure. That's the first assumption. Therefore, planning to survive is not merely about figuring out the worst. It's about taking the actions required to demonstrate to anyone looking at you externally, be it a lender, a, an investor, an employee, sadly, that you intend to survive. And the reality is that if you intend to survive, you've got to do things which are going to be uncomfortable in the short term and many businesses are reluctant to do that you know they, they hope for the best they carry on until they've got no choice and then they make decisions to shed cost and it's too late because all the cash has gone out of the business yeah so plan to survive commit to taking the necessary action to weather the storm and then this enables you to keep the confidence of staff shareholders and potential lenders that might sound uh, it might sound kind of counterintuitive but the reality is that staff aren't stupid they know very well what's going on and at the end of the day, tell them the truth, you know? So, and you mentioned uh, keep the confidence of staff, keep the confidence of uh, suppliers, investors. What about the confidence of customers? Well, uh, again, um, uh, you know, most businesses, uh, not all, but most, um, you know, 20% of your customers will account for 80% of your revenue. Instead of leaning out, lean in to those customers. If you can, and obviously we're talking about the whole of business, so it kind of depends on the nature of a business. But if it's a B2B business, let's say you're, you're providing some kind of industrial component or something, 
you know who, you, who those customers are, they'll have issues, sit down with them, find out what their issues are and show them that you care by being interested in their challenges and offering practical support and solutions. Um, there are, you'd be surprised how many creative ideas that a good, that a good uh, sales account manager can come up with if he sits down with your finance manager, for example. Um, and um, also on the positive side, for customers you want to keep who are liquid, engage with them and figure out ways to get closer to them. And practical things that you might want to do is you might want to, to, it, to, uh, it, to significantly up the level of uh, service that you provide them. So, 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 so for example, be in, be in contact with them more frequently, uh, try and help them, try and understand their issues and be prompt to respond to anything that you hear about. What, what, you can't make the bad situation go away, but you can demonstrate that you are a firm friend. And this is all about differentiation. You are a firmer friend than other suppliers who are just beating them up for money because mm -hmm. they're desperate. Okay, You want the money too, but <laughs> you're starting off by building relationships. Mm. You know? So, so we, you've talked about planning to survive, mm -hmm. first point. Second point, customer confidence is key. But could there be a conflict between the two? Because planning to survive might very well mean, as you said yourself, letting go of certain staff you're not going to be able to service those customers as well. Well, um, so, so there are two kinds of customer. There's the customer who appears to be set up to survive, and there are customers who, many of whom may already have been in trouble, may, you know, customers that were already late in their payments, uh, already seem to be in trouble. You've got to be binary with them. If you don't think they're going to make it, and many won't, then you've got to cut your losses. So, so, so you need to take a binary approach to customers. Get closer to the ones who are, who are going to survive, who are going to be key to your future growth in whatever way that you need to, firstly. And secondly, work hard to identify the ones that are at, at high risk of failing and do not invest in them anymore. I mean, be, be kind and gentle with them and try and cut a deal if you can, yeah? Mm -hmm. um, now, um, there, there's, there's, one all, there's one thing overall, okay, we're going to talk about this a little bit as we move through this, but... One of the things that you typically may want to do in this kind of situation is to remember that cash is king. In other words, in other words, cash flow may be more important than margin. So when you're negotiating with important customers to help you get through and to help them get through, bear that in mind. You know, mm -hmm. It's very important to have money in the bank because that enables you to do a whole bunch of other things that otherwise you simply cannot do. So bear in mind that there are temporary things that you might want to do in terms of pricing and margins. Yeah? Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that that's always the case, but be very careful to recognize the importance of being, um, having positive cash flow. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Okay, well, what if you are the customer? Uh, what, what are the things that you should be saying to your suppliers? Well, um, suppliers want to stay in business too, don't they? Uh, you know, they are, if you think about it, they're in the same situation that you're in. They're worried about whether or not you're going to stay in business. So the first thing is you've planned to survive. So you be honest about your own challenges and show what you're doing to survive. You'll be different because they'll realize if you reach out to them and explain to them what you're doing, particularly if you're taking tough action, tough action, they'll respect it, which is, look, I'm cutting these costs. I'm letting this go. I'm doing this. I'm doing that. Wow, okay, why? Well, because we're going to survive. And not only are we going to survive, but you and I, we're going to have a stronger relationship coming out of this than we had going in, yeah? Mm -hmm. Because we want to sit down and understand what your challenges are, and we're going to plan for a shared future. Now, we want to ask you for a few things, and we want to offer a few things in exchange, okay? So for us, um, we're desperately concerned about cash flow, for example, so we'd like, uh, we'd like you to agree 
that we are going to have some concessions on when we pay you. This will only be short term. When things get better, and we hope they'll get better by the end of June, but if it's longer than that, so be it, you know, mm -hmm. um, then we need, we need some extended payment terms from you. And we are prepared to make some small price concessions in order to achieve those, you know, because at the end of the day, cash is very important to us. You're a larger company than us. We want to continue to be, uh, to be uh, you know, to work with you. Um, so um, so um, for us, cash flow is very important. Please help us. Yeah. So in other words, when you're talking to your supplier, you should already flag to them that you're going to be paying late. No. No, don't do that because that's uh, what you should do. But isn't, isn't that what you were just saying? No, about I'm getting saying concessions it's an on when you pay. Well, not, not, not presented as a fait It's the difference between presenting it as a fait accompli and starting the conversation with, let's plan to survive together. I'll tell you what we're doing. You tell me what you're doing. And then let's talk about some of the options. One of my angles, when you've had that conversation, and it might be one or two occasions, 80 20 rule, right? 20% of your suppliers are providing you with 80% of what you need. Yeah? One of the things you can do, just as a matter of it, of interest, and this is, this is classic procurement strategy, is you can aggregate more of your spend. By that I mean that you can move from, from a large number of suppliers to a smaller number of suppliers. So you can say, look, it's going to be tough for us to get through this. We'd like to, we're interested in working with a small number of suppliers who understand our situation and are prepared to give us concessions in terms of payment. Um, if you're prepared to have that discussion, there's other things that we can add uh, that we currently buy elsewhere. So, so you do have some. You do. You may have some flexibility. Yeah. So, uh, just uh, I'm sorry to pull you up on on that, but there's a difference between saying we're going to pay you, we're going to take more time to pay you, mm -hmm. as as a kind of a, which is what many companies do inexplicably and rather clumsily, um, or, and presenting a fait accompli or of going in there and, and 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 sharing a plan and working on it. Yeah. And if and, right. uh, and frankly, it's, it's very different the approach. It's, your, it's, it's very, very congenial approach. It's very different, and as you know. Um, this is something that I've coached companies on for years and years and years because very often the people that pay the bills, the payables people, the procurement people, are geared to a very specific set of attitudes which tend to be rather binary, which is extract the, the best possible terms, be aggressive in extracting them, all those kinds of things. Human beings are human beings and relationships mean a great deal. They, they mean even more in a situation where there's a lot to play for. When you've got a high degree of risk, the people that are simply binary and press you on cost and don't really care about your situation are going to go right to the bottom of the queue. The people that are genuinely show concern for your situation, offer solutions, are going to do better. Mm. Cash flow, to repeat, may mean more than margin for you and for your um, supplier, so, 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 so do the math. Mm -hmm. If there's a constant theme here, it's maximize cash flow, cut operating cost. Okay, that's what you need to do. Yes, well, which brings us to the fourth of your uh, five key things that you must do to survive the COVID crisis, cutting costs to a survivable worst case level. Uh, and you've already alluded to this uh, when you said plan to survive, but let's uh, explore this in greater detail. Because often, as you say, you want to hope for the best. You don't want to think about worst case level. So what, what sort of uh, things should you be cutting? Well, that very human tendency to hope for the best and cut a bit uh, is very often catastrophic. Because it basically means that you're going to die the death of a thousand cuts. What you do is you, you make the revenue assumption that is most consistent with the facts. So it could be that your revenue is going to go down by 60%. If it is, 
then you have to cut your costs to a level where you're at least able to wash your face, that is pay all the bills and ideally generate a little bit of a margin. That means making some very difficult decisions, first of all about discretionary spend, but that's easy. So, so Because nobody's travelling at the moment anyway. Consulting, <laughs> marketing, PR, travel, all those sorts of things. Mm. Um, then headcount, this is the toughest one. How do you deal with headcount? Well, at the end of the day, we're all tempted to think, well, let's be nice, let's stick with it. You know, that, that's just unrealistic, unfortunately. Um, you need to make uh, quick action to shed you know, part-time non-essential staff. Those that you retain should be retained on the basis of how important they are to your business now and how important they'll be in future. This is a pragmatic business decision. It's nothing to do with who you like, unfortunately. And this is where the realities of business and the realities of human affection uh, part company. But didn't you just say that those procurement people who are terribly binary move to the bottom of the list because you value human relationships? Well, these, but these, we're, talking about our, we're talking about our own people now. Uh, but, but, but it's always about human relationships. So, so procurement people, uh, you need to educate your procurement people to behave in a different way. Okay? Who survives the crisis is going to be a combination of who is prepared to act fast to take necessary action, some of which will be very uncomfortable, and who is prepared to really invest in building relationships, both northwards, that's from people that supply you, and southwards, people whom you supply. What about people eastwards and westwards, your staff? Well, the fact of the matter is that staff cost money, and if you're, in the example which I threw out, which is based on its hypothesis only, if, you're, if your revenue is going to drop to 40% of what it currently is, and for many businesses in many sectors that is true, then you need to cut to the level where your outgoings are consistent with your revenue. And that's almost certainly going to involve letting some staff go. Now, there are ways of, depending on, you know, we're generalizing terribly here because there are many different kinds of organizations. There are tools that you can use. It's not completely binary. You should let go of the ones that are, you know, short-term employees that are costly. But um, things that companies typically do is where you have a uh, number of people that you really value, but the fact of the matter is you've got to let some of them go because you can't afford to sustain them based on the numbers. You can do some kind of retainer arrangement. I've known large companies work like this. In fact, I've been subject to it, where they say, you go home, we're going to pay you only a quarter of your normal salary, but on the basis that we can call you back in at any time in the next three months on an XYZ basis. You know, In the current state of the market, where they're very unlikely to get many people are going to accept that. What that does is it, you know, if the crisis lasts less long than it otherwise uh, might, you are able to pull back in relatively quickly your skilled people uh, and ramp up very quickly without having to recruit people and train them. So, so there are certain things you can do around the edges. But at the bottom, the bottom line is your ability to scale down quickly with all the tough decisions that that implies is going to be absolutely critical to your uh, to your uh, to your to your ability to survive, and actually, you know, I've known many companies. I knew one guy, um, but I've known more than one uh, who are so appalled by the notion of telling long cherished staff we're going to have to let you go that they, that they'd rather they'd rather the whole thing went under than that they had those conversations because they built relationships up over years. But the fact is, if you don't have a business that's sustainable, you're not going to be able to employ anybody. You're looking at the end of the business. I mean, that's. That's what we're staring in the face now, is that a lot of businesses are not going to weather this storm. The ones that weather this storm will, I would submit, need to take these actions. Yeah. Mm. 
You said there were five things companies must do straight away. What's the last one? Well, the last one is communicate. And again, you know, uh, this might sound rather obvious. Well, of course, I can. Well, but but it's not what happens. I mean, so so if I'm an employee in a company that's really under stress, and I read the newspapers and I see what's going on, or I see everyone's at home and they're not buying stuff, um, I know that something's going to happen. But you know, very often companies are very reluctant to have frank conversations. The conversation which says, look. We've run the numbers. You all know that we're in dire times. This is what comes out. What comes out is that we can only sustain 40% of our current organizational size because of the collapse in our in our revenue. Now, we're committed to the survival of the company, so we're going to have to take some very hard decisions, which will include, unfortunately, scaling down our operating costs, which includes maybe letting some people go, yeah? Um, we are, at firstly, the second thing is, it's very hard to rebuild confidence in your legacy team if you do not let people go quickly when they need to go. If you, if you, if you constantly shed people month by month as things get worse and worse and worse, you end up with an extremely toxic internal atmosphere. Yeah, who's wondering, they're wondering who's next to go, right? And, and, and I've seen that again. And you know, very often people, leaderships, leadership allow that to happen because they think it's the kind thing to do. It is not the kind thing to do. It's the very opposite of the kind thing to do. The kind thing to do is to take the tough decisions scale right down, let everyone know that right now we're committed to, you guys are now, I mean, it's been awful what's happened, but the fact of the matter is you're the core team, you're going to help us get through this, and we're going to come back with a bounce in three or four months, yeah, so, so then you start taking your core team, having shed the cost that you need to shed, however tough that is, and then you give them engagement and feedback, you use the time that you've saved from travel and other things by investing in specific training and team building, you give people extra tasks to do, you carve out, demonstrate clear career paths for them. You do what you can to engage, promote, encourage, um, embrace the people that you've kept, yeah? Um, none of that can be done if you haven't taken the tough decision at the beginning, yeah? Thank you, Simon. And for you listening, we wish you all the very best, especially if you're a small and medium enterprise. Uh, we, of course, sincerely hope that you'll at least stay listening to the Riabu podcast, but also that uh, in the next three or four months, hopefully we will have happier things to talk about. Thanks, Simon.